Detroit photographer Kenny Karpov spent more than four years documenting the migration crisis in the Mediterranean. Now he aims to tell the stories of the refugees he encountered in a new book called Despite It All, We Never Learn. I sat down with him to discuss how he began working as a photographer in the Mediterranean and the scope of the book. Um, so I began working uh, with, a, with a bunch of these nonprofits uh, in the Mediterranean. Out of, I contacted one of them and they ended up offering me a position on board um, a rescue vessel. And I really didn't know what to expect at first. Uh, I, I knew of the Mediterranean crisis. I was about maybe a year already in. And going over there, there was about maybe seven or eight sort of rescue vessels doing the work, rescuing people from the coast of Libya, essentially, about 15 to 20 nautical miles. And when I started it, my, my job became like just kind of a rescuer slash photographer. But then over time, I really found myself focusing more on their stories. And so when I – so essentially, I became <laughs> – like a photographer for the NGOs. I kept jumping from ship to ship and working with these nonprofits. And yeah, so like over the course of these four and a half years, I collected, I would say about 160 sort of testimonials uh, from the people. And, you know, they come from all, you know, areas of like sub-Saharan Africa, the Horn of Africa, uh, the Middle East, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and they're all just looking for like a better future. So after being out there for, for four years, you had a lot of your work published. You worked with the BBC. Of course, you've been on WDET before. Uh, and your photographs are, I mean, ex exceptional examples of the crisis that is happening out in the Mediterranean. And so you wanted to come back and not just put together a, a photo book. You've put together a book of the stories that you heard from the folks that you were rescuing. Yeah, Um Coming back, I obviously my friends reached out and were like, "Oh yeah, I really can't wait to you know see what you do with uh, the photographs, either like an exhibition and and a photo book." Like essentially, everyone assumed I'd do a photo book, but I really wanted to turn it sort of like on its head, um, and I felt uh, in a way to elevate their stories more and to elevate the crisis was to fully you know share their stories that they were, you know, that they felt comfortable sharing to me literally, you know, minutes or hours after being, you know, on this little dinghy that that could have, uh, you know, sunk at any point. You know, they they spoke to me about, um, you know, the torture that they endured on their journeys uh, from Africa through Libya or through the Sahara to Libya. And, you know, they told me in you know, horrific detail what, you know, what happened to them. And I just felt that that was the best way to, you know, like I said, sort of give back to them and also just really sort of bring it full circle and share everything that they shared to me and, and, and in their own voice. And I felt that was the best way. This has been called one of the biggest humanitarian crises of the last century. Why do you think it's still such a struggle and what are the obstacles to alleviating this? I think the biggest biggest part is um, there's no sort of NGO work uh, going on 
sort of deterring people from taking this journey. That's the biggest thing. Like, there's no NGOs that are actively being like, you know, going to Libya, you're like, you are entering an area where there's human rights violations everywhere. There's um, there's mass sort of incarceration of black people going on there. There's essentially a uh, uh, slavery, there's human trafficking. I mean, it's a $5 billion business for human trafficking in Libya. Um, and so they come into that area not really knowing what's going on. Or some of the people I actually did speak to uh, told me that, you know, this was their only way to get to Europe and they knew what they would uh, sort of get themselves into. Um, like they read something online or they researched um uh, um, the NGOs that are working there and they would take that journey regardless. But, you know, a lot of the times there's, there's just no deterrent there from, from the nonprofits in Africa. So they essentially take this journey. And then when they get into Libya, that's when everything sort of just falls apart for them. They, they don't know, you know, when their next meal is, they don't know if they're going to live the next day. They have no idea if they'll ever talk to their families um, their loved ones, or if they'll even get to Europe, you know, because they're just essentially just locked in these shacks or warehouses, typically near the beach or or somewhere in the center, and you know they are given either. I mean, I mean, some people spoke to me about how they get little plates of rice or crackers, and usually they're given uh, salt water because it makes them throw the food back up. So that way, you know, so like they're eating something and they feel great, but then they give them salt water and it throws them back up and they could sort of laugh at them in a way. And that way, you know, they don't get another meal for the next day. So then usually after that, they typically don't drink the salt water. So then they're going days without water and then they're, and then they're just eating, you know, usually like bland rice or crackers or, or sometimes they'll just throw the food on the ground and then, you know, they'll just eat with their hands. It's, yeah, yeah it's it, it's horrible. Out of all the, the years you were there, you were there for over four years, uh, is there a, a photograph or a story that comes to mind most when you think about your time there? Um, yeah, I, I remember this uh, this guy, um, but he was, he was from Pakistan. He was a younger guy, I would say in his mid-20s. He was sort of the leader, like, well, he took charge of the boat. There was essentially, I believe, about 123 people on board um, a little white raft. And I remember our our rib approached approached his raft. He said, you know, everyone's fine on here. You know, like if you need to go off and, you know, sort of support other rafts that are in distress, go and do that. Like our boat's fine. We're not taking any water on. Like everyone's super chill here. And so we were like, that's great. You know, like, we'll definitely be back to unload you, to take you onto our mothership. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. And so, you know, dur during this day, there was probably about, I would say, nine or ten uh, rafts around us. And we were the only nonprofit working um, in this region that day. Everyone else was either on a crew change or they were essentially locked up somewhere um, by the police, their boat, uh, confiscated typically. And so we did other rescues. And when we finished, we drove to where that boat was and it wasn't there anymore. And that was just, you know, it was it was almost sort of like a Bermuda Triangle sort of moment. We're like, well, where where could this have gone? Like they don't have a motor. And I mean, like it didn't sink because we would see everything, obviously, still. And so it was just really bizarre. 
And then we got a phone call um, from a fisherman saying that there was a Libyan um, military boat that was essentially uh, taking back um, a raft. And we're like, well, that's got to be the raft that we were uh, going to unload right now. And then so we we started driving full speed to where the um, where the coordinates of the fishermen gave us. And we were about to enter Libyan territory, which you obviously cannot because, then you know, they can board the boat. They can confiscate stuff. They can arrest us or anything. But we got another call from the fishermen and saying that, yeah, they just left the boat um, right by the, you know, about maybe 15 or 20 miles from the shore, which like we typically don't go that close. And so we got there and he was like flagging us down. And, you know, there was no way to obviously, you know, sort of bring them back because they had no motor. So we ended up having to give them a long rope. He ended up tying the rope um, to his boat and him and two other friends, they held on for about an hour and a half uh, on the boat. And when he got on, got onto the ship, you know, I like him and I just embraced each other and gave each other a hug and cried. And it was just really beautiful because, you know, there was so much determination in his face and anytime you know someone wanted to take the reins from him he was like no i got this like relax you know he's like i'm strong enough like i can do this and he was holding on for like dear life the book is called despite it all we never learn and there is a kickstarter that's out right now it's it's due out at the beginning of september you're hoping uh yeah the book will be printed and ready to go uh, the first week of September and the book launch right now pre-sale is available on Kickstarter um, and essentially I'm just asking people to back the book it's uh, $25 to get the nonfiction book $5 goes to the nonprofits that are working overseas so you know so you're helping out in a way <laughs> 